Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. friends. I'm Nikki Ogden, team member of the Happy Hour podcast. Due to an unexpected crisis, Jamie is going to be delaying her book publicity and tour. She's also going to take a break from social media, public appearances, and recording new shows at this time. We want to give her space to process, discern, and recover. We are so incredibly thankful for the community that Jamie has built here at the Happy Hour, and we know that you want to share your love and support for her. The best way that you can do that is by listening to this pre-recorded show and sharing this episode with a friend. Please enjoy one of the most popular episodes here on the Happy Hour with Esau McCauley. Esau, welcome to the Happy Hour. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I was telling you before we hit record that um, I finally got to finish your book that you released in September of 2020. And let's just be honest, September of 2020, it, it was a long time ago. You saw it. A lot of life has happened, <laughs> yes. but I got a chance to read it. And so I am so excited that you are on my show. Oh, well, thank you. I'm getting a little bit of street cred from getting onto this podcast. Most of the stuff that I do, my wife doesn't pay attention to, but my <laughs> wife and her friends are big fans of your work. I told her I was going to be on this podcast. She's like, oh, you've made it. So every now and then my wife looks over at what I do during the day and kind of attends to it. So, hey, Mandy. She- <laughs> I was going to say shout out to Mandy and her friends <laughs> yes. listening to the happy hour. Yes. Well, I'm excited that you're on and I'm glad that your wife and her friends listen to the happy hour. So I'm feeling a little street cred over here as well. Yeah. I want to have you on because I want to have a really, I think, much needed conversation with you about parts of your book that you released. And again, I said a lot has happened and I want to say congrats because you have a kid's book coming out in May. Yes. And I am so excited about that. And we'll chat about that in the end as well. But you released a book called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And I want to be completely honest with you. When this book first came across my desk, I thought this was a book on like black literature, like, oh, what are some new authors I need to add to my reading list? And then, you know, I actually read the subtitle and dove into it. (laughs) And I want to ask you, first of all, I'm a white woman. You're a black man. Yes. And so I want to ask you first, who did you write this book for? Well, it's interesting. I had in mind a particular group of Black people when I sat down to write this book. And the first origins of the idea actually happened when I was studying to do my PhD abroad in the UK from around 2013 to 2016. And I came back to America during kind of the lead up to what became the Trump presidency. And there was a lot of Black Lives Matters protests and those things going on in the streets. And I'd come back from Scotland kind of into the middle of that, leading into that summer and that fall. And I remember seeing a lot of people saying things like, this is a Japan civil rights movement. We're going to do these things differently. But more than that, I felt this sense in which there were a lot of Black Christians and Black people more broadly who were discouraged and who were asking the question, does the Bible and Christianity more broadly have a relevant word for the things that we're experiencing kind of in this moment? And I was raised in the Black church. My heroes were the heroes of the civil rights movement. And they were the ones who contended for justice because of what they believed about God. Mm -hmm. And I felt like we needed an infusion of hope. And so what I wanted to say was, you don't have to put aside Christianity, or since I'm a biblical scholar, a love for the scriptures 
to contend for justice or to care about diversity, because those are the things that have inspired our ancestors from the beginning. And so what Reading While Black was, it was a way of saying the faith that carried our ancestors through slavery, through the abolitionist movement, through Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, can still speak a relevant word. And so what I really wanted to do was to kind of plant my flag at the center of Christianity is good news for Black people. Mm. And that may seem like not a radical thing, but that was on my heart. And I remember thinking when I was 25, what kind of book did I need to read? Mm. And the book didn't exist. And it wasn't that there weren't other good books by other African-American authors, but the particular passion that was on my heart, I hadn't read it. And so I just wrote the book that I would have needed when I was in my 20s, informed by kind of the Black literary tradition as I understood it. So when I'm sitting here telling you that I just read your book as a white 40-year-old woman raised in the church, did you see me reading your book when you were writing it? Well, I didn't see anybody reading the book. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you have this like. So this is what I mean. People often, and you know this, like after something is successful, they pretend like you planned on it succeeding. (laughs) I just wrote the book because I needed to write the book. In other words, I have this compulsion, this thing that was inside of me that I need to get out into the world. And I wanted to help people who were like me. And who were experiencing that sense of discouragement. I saw these kids and these younger people wondering about like their own faith. And so, no, the answer to the question is no. But there's a caveat that goes along to it. Because what I say about the Black church tradition isn't like a form of Christianity that is separated from the rest of the world. In other words, I'm talking about the ways in which Black Christians have received what I believe is the universal gospel and enculturated it and used that gospel to make sense of their lives. Mm -hmm. And because we're talking about the same Jesus and the same Bible, it is applicable to other people in the same way that like Paul wrote the letter. Paul wasn't thinking about you when he wrote to Rome, but you can still open it up. And even though Paul is talking to someone else, you can find something in it that is useful. I'm not saying that my book is the same thing as Paul's letters. I'm speaking about an analogy. So things don't have to be to us to be useful to us. I mean, I even say something like Jane Austen. Like neither one of us are the target audience for Jane Austen. Different culture, different time. We can open it up and find it. And so I did not have you in mind. I never thought anybody would even interview me for the podcast. But I do think that it's useful. I mean, we have different traditions that are like different from us that we can all learn from. The reason I ask you that is because I oftentimes on this show will bring my own like confession and humility yeah. because I want to offer a space where other people can do that as well. And yeah. so I want to say, as I was reading this book as a white woman, so many things. And again, if you're new to the show, you may not know I'm raising three black children. And so this conversation is important to me on a personal level, even though I don't understand it on so many other levels, because I don't have the same experience as you have or as my children will have. But I need to confess to you and to the listener that so many times I was reading your book and I thought, I've never thought about that before because I have never had to think about that before, because I am white. And there was almost this repentiveness coming up in me of saying, God, I haven't seen what my brothers and sisters have experienced and endured. And I don't need to repent for not experiencing because it's just, I I just haven't because I'm white. But there is this opportunity for me to experience compassion and empathy with you as I read the book. Does that make sense of why I'm saying this was a surprising thing for me? I tell this story a lot to people. I remember this about, I don't know, it's four or five years ago. Forgive me. Internet time is really crazy. (laughs) It was when the like Me Too movement was first starting. Uh And one day I was just on Twitter and 
I saw it was when women were starting to tell their stories like church too. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing like a couple of women who I knew tell about things they experienced at the time. I didn't even know Beth. Moore. I know her now, but at the time I didn't know her. And I remember her saying something. And I remember having this initial thought, well, I'm not personally sexist. I've never done these things. And my initial response was to like push it away. And then God was gracious to me. And I said, oh my goodness, this is the exact same thing that people say about race. Mm. And I said, no, no, no. It's not enough for me to be personally not engaging it. Like I need to actually think about the experiences of women who are trying to make their way in the world. I need to figure out how I can be a better advocate. In other words, I had made this idea that in my own personal life, I would do the best that I could. And then I kind of thought that was sufficient. And that awakened me to saying, well, I need to sit down. I need to read. I need to listen. Mm. I need to figure out ways in which I could be an advocate. I don't know what it's like to be a woman who's trying to make their way in the world as a Christian, but I can listen and I can learn and I can examine ways that I can do better. We're all limited. I don't think it's wrong to learn and to grow. I think the hard part is when we're faced with this information that challenges how we live our lives and our assumptions, then we have to make a decision. Mm. And I think that's what happened in America over the last two to three years, or like the last five to seven years, is that so many of us Christians have been faced with this decision. Mm. Now I know, Mm -hmm. or I have the opportunity to know, what am I going to do with it? And I feel like a lot of Christians, especially some of my white brothers and sisters, have said the work of dealing with this is too much. So it's easier for me to ignore it or downplay it or put myself in a position where I don't have to encounter it. Mm. And I know that feeling because I had to face that in my own self. And I had to think about like what I remember. I remember. So you go back and you relitigate. I know this is the thing. You relitigate. Have ever been in rooms where people said jokes are inappropriate Mm -hmm. that I just let slide because I didn't want to be the guy who ruined everything? And how does that create a culture that is perpetuated? And what does it mean for people to know that you can't be sexist around me? Or what does it mean for me to say, how can I be intentional about giving platforms or sharing the influence that I have with other up and coming women so that they can share and have access to those rooms? I do biblical studies. I know this is not what you invited me on the podcast for, but it's what I'm thinking about right now. So I completely understand some of the things that you're thinking about. Well, I think that's good to talk about. And it's exactly what we try to do here at the happy hour a lot. And you just said something that was so profound. You know, you had to sit, you had to read and you had to listen. And I think that is where so many people get caught up as they think, well, this doesn't affect my life. And in all reality, you know, what happens to a woman might not affect your, I mean, you're married to a woman, so you can feel that tension. And for me, like I have black children, so I feel that tension, but it is important to us. And so let's jump in that. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit about how we can sit and read and listen to the things that might not feel like they affect us personally. So in the book, you talk about struggle that many black people have experienced, the struggle between black nihilism and black hope. And you wrote this book as a beacon of hope, which I love. And you talk about the conclusion that this is a book of hope. And I loved it. And I felt that as I read it, like, this is so hopeful. So can you expand on that and explain that a little bit to us, what you mean by that? So there is this sense in the African-American community where we all know one of the interesting things when you go from like a black context to a white context is the nature of the argument. In other words, when you go into some white Christian context, the question of whether or not there's systemic or structural racism is an open question. I'm not saying that no black people doubts like the existence of systemic racism, but it's a consensus. It's not something that is controversial. The idea that racism is not interpersonal. But then the question becomes, what do you do about it? 
Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of solutions that are on offer in the black community. One of them is a colonialism where you kind of say, well, the game is rigged. So let me take what I want to kind of carve out a little bit of a life for myself. And so since the game is rigged, there are no rules. So mm-hmm. that's where you get kind of crime, discouragement, or even materialism. Like that's one solution. And that's ultimately a cynical approach to reality. And so when I was a kid, I grew up in that context where some people were the nihilists. Like, well, you know, there's always going to be racism. Society's broken. They treat black people wrong. So if I got to sell drugs, if I got to manipulate, then that's fine. But it was the church that actually gave me a better pathway of being human. There was another strand, which is not black nihilism, like a particular form of black nationalism. There was more separatist. Mm -hmm. And so, but the church was saying, no, 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 there's a God who oversees the universe, whose orientation is towards justice. And who also opens up the path for a beloved community. It's not just the fact that God cares about Black people. He does. He cares about who we are. But he also cares about the rest of the world, too. And he wants to create a family. It was the church that gave me this sense of hope Mm. in a world in which it was easy not to hope. And maybe that's the reason why when I saw what was going on in society, I said, I want to offer that hope again to the people. This feels very North American-esque problems. You've traveled the world. You said you lived in Scotland for your PhD. Do you feel what I just said is true between the two chasms that you had to deal with, with growing up in the world and what you you know, found this nihilism versus the hope the church was giving? I would say that one of the things that I have noticed as I traveled, I lived in Japan for a while. And I read a little bit about some, and I experienced some of the dynamics between what's going on in Korea, Japan, and China. Mm -hmm. And even for those of you who may know this, native Okinawans versus people from Japan. And there is a tendency, no matter where you go in the world, to have people attribute value based upon things that God himself doesn't attribute value to. So in other words, a racial caste system of some form or fashion tends to exist in every culture. You go to India, you have the caste system. And so I consider America a particular barrier on a universal problem. And maybe that's like, it's a sin. I think that the particular challenges that America faces are unique Mm -hmm. and the particular history of Black people in America are in some ways unique. But the undergirding sin of attributing value where God doesn't attribute value and creating a racial hierarchy is common to humanity. And so the Black Christian tradition in America is unique for a variety of reasons, which it may take too long to explain. (laughs) That's like a whole podcast series. That's a whole podcast, yes. Series. You could do a whole series on that, you saw. Yes. You know, you talk again about this hope and you talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah. And again, I told you already, like so many times I read this book and was just like, I would have never in my wildest dreams been able to capture what you captured and put together for the hope for Black people in America based on reading this part of the scripture. So can you expand on that? (laughs) Jamie, you win the gold star. Why? I will tell you. Say it again for the people in the back, Esau. (laughs) You win the gold star. They don't notice. I'm going to break the third wall. So when you do the podcast, they say, what are the things that you want people to talk about? What are the things that people never ask you that you hope that they ask you? But I didn't tell them because I'm not going to give it to you. I want to see if you can find the thing. So my favorite part of the book is the Zachariah and Elizabeth section. And nobody ever asked me about it. Like once out of every 20 podcasts. So I think it's the best part of the book. And I think it's the most important part of the book. And I'm going to talk about it because it was 
was just like, I remember when I wrote it, I was so excited about it. And everybody wants to ask about something else. But I think it's the, it's the heart of the book. So Zachariah and Elizabeth, for those of you who know about the Bible, are these two elderly characters who don't have any children. And the point that I'm trying to make in the book is they live the entirety of their lives under Roman occupation. And Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth is from a priestly family. And so that means that Zechariah is having to function as a clergy person in a context where everybody around him doesn't get what they wanted. So you can imagine all of the people of Israel who says we were born under Roman occupation. Our parents are born under Roman occupation. Our children are be under Roman occupation. The Messiah has never come. You can imagine the despair that would have encompassed the entirety of Zachariah and Elizabeth's ministry. And they had their own personal trauma. Not only was there the national trauma, Zachariah and Elizabeth are having to minister in a context of a discouraged people, but Zachariah and Elizabeth themselves never had any children. So they're out there ministering to their people, and then they're coming home with their mm. own private hope. And to me, it is really important that Luke begins his story with these people who had to walk through life with their own trauma and who never gave up hope. Mm. And what I said is they stand in a metaphorical sense to what I call my Black ancestors who came into Christianity in a context where slavery was the law of the land. And some of them died having never received freedom. But they also had their own traumas, like these black people who had their own traumas, and they're still kind of contending. And they're saying, and you can read the abolitionist literature, they're saying God is one day going to liberate us. Mm. And even those who escaped to the north who are lamenting their brothers and sisters who are in the south, there's a sermon that they should find. I don't know if you can find it. I'm going to send the people. It's called We Seek the Brethren. I think I quoted mm. it in the book. Oh, man, it moves you because it talks about the people who want to go back to the south. Anyways. The fact that Zachariah and Elizabeth have a child named John, who then prepares to wear the Messiah, is a vindication of them. I think that's how they function in Luke's narrative. Zachariah and Elizabeth function to link what's going on with Jesus to the long history of faithfulness in Israel. Mm -hmm. And so the sign of John is a sign that works both ways. In other words, John vindicates their life of faithfulness, and the one miracle for them kind of infuses the community. You've seen this happen before in your own life where something happens in someone else's life who you know is a good Christian and it just encourages you. And so what I was trying to speak about was how the liberation of the slaves and the birth of the black church is like the birth of John. Mm. It's the vindication of all my ancestors who died never having seen freedom because they believed in God. And this is what I want people to understand. It's really a subtle argument. God's present activity in our lives works both forward and backwards. What I mean is you might have prayed for something for 25 years or your grandparents or someone did. But when God answers that prayer, it runs all the way back through history and it runs forward through history. So then when you look 25 years down the road and you experience a new trauma, you think, I remember when God helped me 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the point of all of that then is to me, the birth of the Black church in America, it's this thing that challenges me because they said God was going to free them. God did free them. And you can read the literature. They're saying it wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It was God. Mm -hmm. So they saw their faith vindicated and the liberation of the slaves and the expanding freedom for black people. So that means I can't really say what has God done for us. Mm. 
Because they said, what has God done for us? He freed the slaves. Mm -hmm. And not only did he free the slaves, he changed our lives. He made us new. And so what I'm trying to articulate there is in the same way that John the Baptist's birth raises the question, what might this child be? And what does it mean for what God is doing in Israel? which is how John functions. Mm -hmm. I want to say the mere existence of the black church and the vindication of their faith forces me to ask 150 years down the road, was God or was God not active in the lives of my ancestors? And does their testimony matter? And so I kind of play with that metaphor through the book. And for me, one of the most hopeful things that came out of this book for me was reading the sermons of black Christians during that era. Because it's a challenge because I know what it's like to look around and see in the church nothing but hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And you say, I look back 50 years and I see nothing but corruption. And I look forward into the 50 Mm -hmm. years and maybe I don't see a lot of hope. But there were people who were in a similar circumstances who believed anyway Mm -hmm. because of what they were convinced of about God. And the fact that my ancestors did that encouraged me, who's a Christian, because I received that tradition Mm -hmm. not to toss it aside too lightly. I love it. You actually said, why did Zechariah and Elizabeth continue to trust in God? Because he was a God who frees from slavery. His fundamental character as liberator marked him as our trustworthy, even when they had yet to experience it. Yes. And that is what you're talking about. And then you also said, according to Payne, who you're talking about, Daniel Alexander Payne, yeah. an early AME bishop, he said, black freedom did not arise from the charity of presidents, but from the sovereign hand of God, just like the story of Exodus and the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the liberator. I loved that connection so much when you said that. I want to switch gears just a little bit because you brought up, you know, this understanding of when you see right now, you can sometimes get stuck in hopelessness and like, is God moving? And especially talking about white Christians and black Christians and where is that coming from? You released an article last July on Christianity Today called Critical Race Theory Debate Distracts from Racial Justice. Dear Lord, just saying critical race theory. Some people just start sweating already. Okay. So everyone just calm down. Hold up. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. (laughs) This has been a hard conversation in the last couple of years. And, you know, I always like to say like, and you even say in this article, I believe that we can debate all day long the tenets of CRT and all the things. But what your point in here is saying is that it has become a distraction. You say these sick parts of the body told us to just preach the gospel. And there are very few things more harmful for Christian cooperation than the weaponization of the gospel against black and brown cries for justice. He went on in the article to say this. In the end, the pandemic test has made plain this truth. The church is not socially or politically ready for all that our modern interconnected world demands of us. We need to go back to school and finally learn the lessons we've refused to learn. Our mutual hatred and distress only makes us weaker. So my question to you is what are the lessons that the church needs to learn in part of having this conversation? And be real and bold and straight with us, Esau, because we can take it. What I want to say is there's a couple of things. One is when I talk about the lessons of history, and this is really, really important to actually go back. And this is actually transformative to me to go back and read the slavery abolitionist debates and listen to how the black Christians were described during those debates. In other words, they were saying, because you're an abolitionist, you're a bad Christian. In some places, they were called atheists and communists. And so this is like, you can go back and read it. And so we tend to think that, oh, these people were men and women of their times. Nobody told them. But no, no, no. There were actual Christians who were saying, as a Christian, you shouldn't do this. And not just once or twice. Frederick Douglass was run out of communities. And so I said, well, hold on. In the 1850s, we were called bad Christians and atheists for and not believe in the gospel 
for talking about abolition. You fast forward to the civil rights movement and you have people like Dr. King and other people contending once again for equality. And they're saying people are pretending that this is about Christianity, but it's really not about Christianity. They want to destroy America and they're communists and atheists. And they would say, and this is what they would do. So Martin Luther King would go on a march. There'd be anybody who cared about justice. He could come on. They say, look, Dr. King associates with known communists. Mm -hmm. Therefore, like this is a real communist movement. In other words, whenever African-Americans of whatever theological stripe have said, you shouldn't do these things to us. The response has been, you're not really a good Christian. You're an atheist. You're being divisive. The letter to the Birmingham jail, the famous one, is written to white Christian moderates who are saying you're causing problems. You should take your time. So in other words, if you are from a tradition where there's been an argument in abolition and the civil rights movement, and the response has been these people aren't actually Christians, you should be afraid of them. And then you see the exact same argument happening again. You should at least be suspicious, right? You should at least say, well, hold on. Why do I sound exactly like the slaveholders mm-hmm. 150 years ago? And that sounds harsh, mm-hmm. but you, it's actually there. So maybe you can say, I've inhabited a way of responding to these things by de-Christianizing these people so they don't have to deal with the issues mm. themselves. In other words, if I say to people, I read the law and the prophets. And as I read the book of Exodus, God tends to like to liberate people. And when I read things like Isaiah and Isaiah says, what do you mean crushing the face of the poor? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, Jesus himself seems to care about these things. I'm actually making an exegetical argument based upon passages of the Bible. If your response to me is this comes from Germany and the Frankfurt school, It seems to me that it's a distraction from the actual issue at hand. And what I see a lot, if I can be completely honest, is something along the following rhetorically. Yes, we know racism is bad, but this is really what the real danger to the church is. And then there's a whole long list of like all of the evils that came out of Germany. And like, sure, we can have like a debate on whether or not certain tools of analyses are useful, but that shouldn't be the first question. In other words, nearly everything that you need to help black and brown people in America, as far as getting a disposition towards justice, is written in the Bible. Mm. I'm not saying that the Bible prescribes the solution in a form of policy. What I'm saying is the Bible depicts a world in which we should expect the strong to step on the weak and for things like racism to exist. And the Bible depicts God as being on the side of the people who are stepped on which means the people who are part of God's family should have a disposition towards looking out for oppressed and stepped on people. So when Christians attempt to do that and you want to distract by arguing this all originates in critical race theory, you're actually not facing the thing itself. The best way that I can say this to be as simple as I possibly can is to say that slavery was a legal system in the United States that permeated every aspect of society that Black people experienced. If you actually want to contend that no Black person considered the idea that racism could be in a structure until Karl Marx told them this, it's actually a ridiculous argument. It's functionally like absurd. So like a black person under Jim Crow never thought, hey, this feels like society is against me until Karl Marx says, 
there's oppressors in a, but that's just, it's silly. And so that's the reason why this prerequisite to show all of my ideas are completely clean of any influence from anywhere else before I can have the racial conversation. When there's things from Black history itself that will lead us to make certain conclusions about society, and there's things in the Bible that will lead us in that direction, maybe we should begin the conversation there. But the fact of the matter is, and you can see this, and this is what I say to people all of the time, forgive me for going knee deep, but I'll stop in a second. People can trace the history of an idea and they will say, here's the long history of how this came from Germany into this. They will tell you all of this stuff. And then I will say to them, "Okay, explain to me the development of the black Christian tradition. And it's crickets. Mm -hmm. So, like, in other words, what were black people saying in America in 1700? And how does that black Christian tradition diverge and separate and come to its conclusions? In other words, you can trace some of those ideas around injustice and continuing for righteousness through the Black encounter with the Bible, and it's written there, and nobody knows that story. And because they can't imagine Black people sometimes coming up with their own ideas, we just become the puppets of Germans, Mm -hmm. which is itself paternalistic. And so what I was trying to show people is that what people think of it's only originating in a worldview that exists in opposition to the Bible. Actually, for many Black Christians, comes from their reading of the Bible and our commitment to its authority and inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's because what we believe about the Bible that leads us to say certain things about justice in society. And it's also because what we believe about the Bible that allows us to have hope. In other words, we don't just say that these things are bad and that you must forever be our enemy. We say that these things are bad. You've done these things. But the cross offers an opportunity for us to be reconciled and to become a part of God's family that is actually cooperating and functioning well together. And with that, we will end the podcast. Thank you, Esau, for coming. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so good. And I think this is really great. I told you before we started that the majority of my listeners are white, maybe because I'm white. I don't know. But this is a conversation that's important for us. And we talked about this earlier about sitting down and listening and learning. And this is what it's for, because those arguments that people are throwing, they just don't stand up, especially They don't stand up, especially when you've listened and you've learned about black people in America and the journey and the hope and the pain. That's when those things don't hold up anymore. And so I'm grateful for this conversation and everything that you're doing. I want to ask you this. You released this book in 2020, and I would imagine that although it was Christianity Today's book of the year in 2020, and I'm sitting here raving about it and so many people loved it, I would imagine there was some pushback to it. Yes. Um, (laughs) I'm not asking you to bring us into that, but I do want to ask, what does life look like for you on the other side of that? It's been much harder. The way that I say it is that be careful of attacking principalities and powers because sometimes they fight back. So I guess I was naive. Or hopeful, Esau. Maybe we can say that. (laughs) Or hopeful. I thought, you know, a lot of times people are suspicious of issues of race and justice because it comes from a theological framework that they're uncomfortable with. And I said, I'm a pretty traditionally minded guy. I believe in the Bible. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and all of those other good things. I'll just explain like what Black people have always believed. I go to the Black church who preach from the Bible. And so I said, well, maybe when they read this, people who have historically been hostile will finally understand where we're coming from. And it's been positively received, but I've been attacked and I've been called, like I say, everything but a child of God. I've gotten hate mail. I've gotten, it's funny because I made it a decision to not tell people about all of the details of the things that I've had happen to me. I've had, you know, 
protest about, you know, things that I've written in, like I'm ruining young students' minds and I'm doing, I'm like, I tell my wife sometimes, I was like, do you read this? I don't like this guy either, but I don't know him. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think the hardest thing is the fact that people aren't always being honest. Mm. So in other words, nobody's above criticism, Yeah. but it's much easier to demonize something than engage with it. And the amount of times that I have been demonized has been sometimes a little bit difficult. The way I like to talk about it is there are, I think that a lot of Christians kind of recognize that there's something that's not exactly right about how we deal with race in the church. And they want to kind of figure out a better way. And there's another section of the church that is really, really conservative. And it feels like their ministry is to say, be careful of these people who are saying that you should care about these things. Now, there's another section of the church, if I can be really honest, who are kind of saying Christianity itself is fundamentally broken. And I feel like there's a big group of us in the middle who are saying, well, maybe because of what we believe about Christianity, we can do things better. Mm. And it's that moderating position of saying, I still want to believe these things, but I also think that the church can do better. That sometimes gets you angry from both sides. The people who think that I should go in a more, I guess you say, revisionist direction. And those who think that I shouldn't offer any criticism at all are sometimes the loudest voices. And it's been really hard to kind of sometimes feel like I can't be both these things, Mm -hmm. right? I can't be both a like liberal heretic Mm -hmm. and a fundamentalist. And so it's been really difficult to to kind of live in that tension. But I think that's where the church is. I don't think this faithfulness is in the middle. I think that faithfulness is orientation towards truth and orientation towards truth sometimes upsets both extremes. And it would be really, really easy. Trust me, Jamie, I could make a lot of money if I was the black guy who ran around and saying everything's fine. Let's just love each other. Or if I was the black guy who said, burn the whole thing to the ground. But as the black guy who says, yeah, y'all messed up and you need to own that. Mm. But the cross that was available to me is available to you if you wanted to repent and begin again. That's not an easy space to inhabit. And I've been learning to live with that along with some other people for the last few years. Well, and I don't say this to like put you on a pedestal by any means, and I'm not saying that you equal Jesus at all. (laughs) But what I am saying is that when I read the scriptures, I see Jesus holding that tension as well. And he is our ultimate example of that, of, you know, he's not running around burning the whole place down, but he is calling sin what is sin and bringing in peace and truth and hope at the same time. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I say to people, there's no greater evidence of kind of the work of the gospel in the lives of Black Christians, then the posture that the Black church adopts coming out of slavery. Mm. I told this story a couple of times, but this didn't make it into the book. But there is a guy, Penitent's Triumph is the name of the slave chapter in the book. But what I didn't include, I don't think in the book, is the story of him writing to his slave master towards the end of his life. And Penitent says to his slave master, he's escaped now, he's in the North. And he writes to his former master and he says, look, dude, you're about to die soon. You're going to die. And you're going to go before your maker and you have a chance before you die to free your remaining slaves so that you don't have to go before God with those things on your conscience. Because I don't want you to have to answer to those things. Mm. There's still time. And he said, I say this without malice in my heart for what you did to me. He says, you did it. You were jacked up, but I'm writing you to like hope for you. And I said, I don't know if I could do that. Mm. I don't know if I could say to the person who enslaved me, you can begin again. But that's kind of the miracle of the black church. He doesn't sugarcoat it. 
He actually says you're in danger of coming before God with this sin on you. And there's the possibility your last act could be like this creation of brotherhood. And what I want to say is, this is what I feel like is a part of the call. It doesn't have to be this way. But in order for us to get to being a family, we got to address the issues. You got to free the slaves. We can't just say we're friends, but you're still enslaving people. So what I'm trying to get at is not that I want to destroy everything. I'm just saying Christians, we share these common beliefs about God. We ought to be able to work together towards creating a more just society, not to create the kingdom on earth because we need Jesus to come and do that, but so that we can bear witness to a different and better way of being human Mm -hmm. so that the church can create the family that the secular world never was able to do. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm about. There is no other agenda. And, you know, you didn't mention this just now, but you mentioned it thoroughly in the book. Not only did we see, you know, we talk about black Christians coming out of slavery, but so most white Christians were using the Bible as a defense of the slavery that was happening. And so not only did they come out like hopeful and believing the gospel, but it had been used against them their entire life. What people don't understand is that's one way of looking at the American history as a 250-year theological debate, the recent, that part of it, as an extended theological debate between Black Christians and white Christians about the implications of the gospel as it relates to how we treat one another. And in every case, the Black Christians have been right. I'm just being honest. So like we look back and nobody goes to slaveholders was right, but both of them were claiming the Bible. Right. The nuance in my book is the following, though. It's because the Black Christians believe the Bible was true and that the Bible as God's word was more powerful than what the slave master said about them. Mm-hmm. In other words, they didn't think the liberation came from rejecting the text. Liberation came from America fully embracing the text. And so I feel like that's what I'm attempting to do. I'm not trying to tell you to toss your Bible away. I'm trying to tell you to read it and then apply what it's doing to our current context. And we've been asking our brothers and sisters in Christ to do this for hundreds of years. And it's just too often that the rhetorical move that you aren't really Christians have been used for me to take it very seriously. I mean, it feels like a straight up miracle of God that the reason that slaves would say this is not okay is because they trusted in the Bible. When I think I would have been like, screw the Bible. (laughs) One of the things that I talk about in the book is that there were black Christians, black people who did that. Mm -hmm. There's a strand of black culture now who say that Christianity is a white man's religion and that it's used to enslave us. You did a great job of unpacking that in the book as well. And so what I was trying to say is the more American Christians continue to push forward this kind of oppressive form of Christianity in some cases, the more it gives strength to that tradition. Mm. And what I want to say is actually treating Black people well and justly helps the gospel. It bears witness to what we believe about Christianity. And our witness matters. And so, yeah, there was a tradition of Black people who said, if this is what your God tells you to do, I want nothing to do with it. And then there was another group of traditions saying, no, 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 stay on our team Mm. because the way they're talking about Christianity is false. Yeah, And so I feel like I and a bunch of other people are heirs of that tradition, that tradition of saying you don't got to reject God to get justice, but Mm -hmm. God is a God of justice. And when we say that, we don't say that lightly. We got a whole mountain of scriptures. And you have the history of the people that have gone before you that have said that. And like those are the two pillars of my book, history of the black church in America and the scripture themselves. To depict the God who is a liberator. Yeah. And I want to say, because people always think this, because it's the nature of the conversation. If you read some of those testimonies, they talk about a twofold liberation. 
And it's clear there's a liberation from actual social, cultural, political oppression. But they also believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And they kind of what we would say pled the blood. In other words, we didn't separate sanctification and personal transformation and holiness from justice. Mm -hmm. The same God who cared about my holiness also cared about my liberation. And so I don't highlight liberation to the exclusion of holiness. I just say that both of these things are a part of what it means for God to be at work in our lives and in the world. Well, Esau, I would and would love to talk to you for a whole nother hour, but you know, this is the happy hour. But I yes. just want to personally say, while I'm chatting with you to everyone that's listening, that this book is a powerful book. It is for everyone, no matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter where you are as a white or black American and or anyone in the world, but you know what I mean? Really, really, really good. And I really appreciate the thinking and the study and the way that this book was formed. So there's my personal thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I do want to ask you this. Now, I want to tell everyone this. You have a kid's book that's coming out in May, May 10th, Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. I haven't seen the inside of the book. I've only seen the outside. It's basically the cutest thing I've seen in a really long time. I'm going to send you a PDF as soon as we're done. I'll email it to you. I cannot wait. And listen, I'm going to love this book because I have a black daughter and I have spent many, many, many hours at the hair salon. (laughs) And so I cannot wait to get my hands on this book. But I would love to know, and you guys, it's not out yet, but you know, you can pre-order and I've told you guys a thousand times how much pre-orders help authors. So do that. Yes. I'd love to know, what are you reading these days? My friend Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called Prayer in the Night that I'm really, really enjoying. Jackie Hill Perry wrote a book called Holier Than Thou that I'm working through. And to be honest, me and my wife have been binging. I could talk about TV. We've been binging the British baking show recently. Okay. I love that. Well, two (laughs) things. Number one, I read Tish's book last year. It was my favorite book of the year. And I'm right now reading the one that she released probably in 2019 or something before then. I will tell you this. I saw on your form that you sent in that you're reading Jackie's book. And I had texted Jackie this morning. And I said, we were texting about something else. And I said, hey, by the way, do you know Esau? And she said, yes, he is amazing. (laughs) And she said a couple of awesome things about you there. And then I just said, and by the way, he just told me he's reading your book. So I was like, Jackie, look at Esau over here reading that book of yours. Jackie is, I mean, she is like super talented. I mean, I don't know how you can be good in like five different things, but she's Uh a great speaker. She can rap. She can like rap her face off and she can write. And I mean, so it's just like I've always been impressed by her. And she can decorate and she makes really cute babies, her and Preston. Yeah, I try to be. You know how you you meet certain people and you're trying to play it cool? Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But like, yeah, Jackie is one of my favorite creatives, artists. I just think that she's a wonderful gift to the body of Christ. She is a wonderful gift. She's been a dear friend to me. Esau, man, thank you so much for coming on to the happy hour. Uh, Thank you, Mandy, again, for listening to the show. Thank you. Um, Thank you for this book. Thank you for the work. You guys go follow Esau and we look forward to your kids book in May. The Happy Hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivey, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell. And the show is edited by Jason Talley. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly 
warm up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com.